Good evening, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports on a Tuesday night, March 29th. Opening day right around the corner. Hopefully spring on the way. Masters next weekend. Hard to feel it in the air since it's been a dreary, cold, dank day here in New York today. Although supposedly tomorrow, 60 degrees and sunny. That, of course, was in excess with Kiss the Dirt. R.I.P. Michael Hutchins. Big show to get to tonight. Recap uh, some of the NCAA games over the weekend, setting up the final four between South Carolina and Gonzaga in one in the early game, and then Oregon, North Carolina in the later game on Saturday. Some NBA to get to. Cavaliers struggling. MVP race heats up. Talk a little bit about the NFL. Got the owners' meetings going on this week in Phoenix. Talk about the Raiders' impending move to Las Vegas. And finally, we'll finish up with some Major League Baseball, a little bit of an NL East preview, including my New York Metropolitans. But we start with the NCAAs and what has been a pretty good tournament. Um... Gave us some pretty good games over the weekend. We've got a bit of a Cinderella in South Carolina, a seven seed. South Carolina, not much of a pedigree as a basketball program. Their coach, Frank Martin, uh, had uh, has had a good had a good career prior when he was at Kansas State. I believe he took them to uh, an Elite Eight once. Um, he's a bit of a lunatic. He supposedly softened lately, although you hardly could tell. If you watch the way he gets in his players' faces and screams at them from about an inch away, not exactly uh, my favorite thing to see. Um, but he's a real hard-nosed coach. That's his thing. Uh, and he's getting a lot of pub now, um, which is fine. Not really my cup of tea, but you got to give him credit. I mean, the guy is a good coach from a results standpoint anyway. And South Carolina, who I'm sure nobody really thought maybe other than the most die-hard South Carolina fans, the players themselves, the coaches, their families, friends, student body, I'm sure even they probably uh, are shocked to see South Carolina in the Final Four. Although, based on the performance of the other teams from the SEC in this tournament, the SEC looks like it could be also not only the best football conference, but uh, certainly, if not the, one of the best basketball conferences. And certainly the ACC laid quite the egg in this tournament. And, you know, listen, there's something to be said for that, but also some of that is just circumstance, right? I mean, if you uh, are an ACC team or whatever conference you're in, it all depends on the matchups. And there were some some egregious errors made by the committee. First of all, and we may have talked, but I don't think we did. Middle Tennessee State was a 12 seed. They never should have been that lowest seed. They should have been a much higher seed. Uh, same for, goes for Wichita State, who was a 10 seed. Um, should never, ever have had North Carolina, Kentucky, and UCLA in the same bracket. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So you had Kentucky playing UCLA, right? North Carolina was the one seed, Kentucky the two, UCLA the three. Yeah, North Carolina, sorry, Kentucky playing UCLA uh, two games ago, and then Kentucky, North Carolina on Saturday. 
or Sunday rather. Now, fun matchup on paper looked great. The game itself, not great. Very sloppy. Both teams went extended periods of time when neither could get a score a basket. The ending was thrilling because when Kentucky looked like they were done, uh, Malik Monk, uh, you know, was going to be a top 10 at worst lottery pick, maybe even a top five, drills a three, clutch three to tie it with about three seconds left. No, sorry, longer than that, like eight seconds left. North, uh, North Carolina inbounds the ball and passes off to a guy who's not one of their stars by any stretch, really a role player, and the guy drains like a 20-foot jumper with .3 left on the clock to win the game. So a thrilling ending to what was not a particularly thrilling game. Again, very sloppy, frankly ugly at times. Not an aesthetically pleasing game. One thing to point out on that last play, so Cal Parry said he should have called a timeout after the made basket so he could set up his defense, and I don't disagree with him there. This is why the college game oftentimes is more exciting than the NBA game because NBA, if you if if Roy Williams, in that instance when the, the, the team that's getting the ball, in the NBA that you always see the, the team after the other team makes a shot called timeout because you get to in the, inbound the ball from half court, right? So you're much closer. Whereas in college, if you call a timeout, you're still inbounding the ball from underneath your own bat, uh, underneath your opponent's basket. They still got to go the length of the floor. So in this case, it didn't behoove Roy Williams to call a timeout because that allows Kentucky to set up their defense. So he smartly didn't call a timeout. They came up the length of the floor. Kentucky, you could see, kind of scrambled a little bit. Now listen, it wasn't like they gave up a layup. You know, probably the one guy on North Carolina you want taking the shot is the guy who took the shot. And it wasn't exactly, again, a layup. It was a 20-foot jumper. It was maybe a foot or two inside the three-point line. You tip your cap. The guy made it, you know, the kid made a hell of a shot. But that's why oftentimes the college game is more exciting than the NBA game. Because if that's an NBA game, you know the NBA coach calling timeout. You know they're going to run a play from half court. Uh, probably in the NBA game, the way it goes, particularly if you're, uh, you know, uh, a Knicks fan, it's, you know, your, your supposed superstar taking a terrible, contested, off-balance forced shot with, you know, no time left on the clock to try to win it. So uh, that's, that's a, it's a difference in the rules that, that I think favors excitement in the college game. But um, circling back to South Carolina, you give them credit. I mean, look, they're a hard-nosed team. You know, they, they got that guy, uh, what's his name, something Thornwell. Um, we'll go to the, uh, the Google-ator. Um, what is this kid's name? He's got a cool name and he's their best player. Uh, I'd never heard of him until I watched Jace, Jay, sorry, Jay Williams on uh, PTI filling in for Wilbon last week. Uh, guy knows his college basketball. I mean, it is his job, but he knows his college basketball for sure. Uh, let's see. It's something with a Cindarius Thornwell. He's a senior guard, 6'5", 211. He's their best player. Uh, let's see. He averaged... That's actually, by the way, very good size. And he averaged 21 points, 7 rebounds, and, and just shy of 3 assists a game. And and I guarantee you, by the way, that this kid, maybe now, because South Carolina has made it to the Final Four, perhaps, but I guarantee you, had that not been the case, he would not be thought of as a lottery pick. Um, he'd probably be lucky to be a first-round pick and probably be you know late uh, outside of the lottery, maybe even in the 20s, because he's a senior, 
And in the NBA, we can't draft seniors. No, man. We have to take guys from Europe nobody's ever heard of or guys who play one year and then come out. Like this dope from Duke who averaged four points and four rebounds a game and decided he's coming out after a year. What's this kid's name? I got to find this. I mean, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. So if you're a smart... But guess what? You know you know who will draft Cinderius Thornwell? The Spurs. Smart teams like that. That's who will draft this kid. Or the Grizzlies. Who I understand they're not great, but they're the Grizzlies, and yet they're in the playoffs every year. That's who drafts this kid. Not the Knicks. Well, the Knicks are in the lottery this year, so whatever. But they wouldn't draft him. But the smart teams that are always in the playoffs every year. By the way, I believe this is going to be the 19th season in a row that the Spurs have won 50 games or more. We'll get to the NBA a little bit later. But anyway, so Cinderius Thornwell, best player on South Carolina. So they play Gonzaga in the first round. uh, First round. First game. And then Oregon, North Carolina. I I mean, let's get real. We, We want... Or I would imagine, at least I want, North Carolina-Gonzaga final. You've got the Blue Blood program of all Blue Blood programs in North Carolina facing Gonzaga, who for years was kind of the nice little story Cinderella and is now, you know, kind of, I mean, look, they're a one seed. They're, they they lost one game all year, and that was way, you know, it was late in the regular season. I think I may have said on an earlier show that was a good thing for them. Because the likelihood of going undefeated for an entire season is about none. So, you know, Gonzaga is whatever they are. If you add their tournament run, they're like 38-1 and this year. They're a good team. They got a really good big man. They got a good point guard. I mean, Gonzaga is good, but they're good every year. In fact, it's funny. Gonzaga went from being the upstarts to a team that this is their first Final Four was disappointing in recent years. And speaking of which, let's get, we'll get to, so Oregon, who I know nothing about, I'll be perfectly honest, I know nothing about Oregon, I think if you know, if you've ever heard this show, I can't stand anything that has to do with Oregon, those uniforms irritate me to no end, uh, don't like the football team, don't like the basketball team, basically don't even acknowledge that their basketball team's any good, I'm sure it is, obviously it is, they're in the Final Four, um, and I watched the game somewhat against Kansas the other night. You know, they look like they're a long athletic team. Whatever. Kansas played an egg. They played a terrible game. Kansas, who had looked so good in the tournament up until that point, with Frank Mason the third, the stud point guard, and then Josh Jackson, the stud freshman, is going to be a lottery pick. Um, so there's a lot of people now debating whether or not Bill Self, Kansas's coach, uh, you know, is he should he be on the hot seat? Because now this... They're now two and seven in elite eight games. Think about that. They're two and seven in elite eight, eight games. What does that mean? It means they've been to the elite eight nine times since he's been the coach. They've won the Big Twelve regular season championship or Big Twelve title since he's been there thirteen years in a row. You want to fire Bill Self? Go ahead. I, I, I have a little school down there in the Beltway in the DMV, as they call it. D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, University of Maryland College Park, I'll hire Bill Self tomorrow to replace Mark Turgeon as coach. Nine times, and he has a national championship too, by the way. 
I mean, look, you get you start getting to the elite eight, and obviously the final four. I mean, that you can't now start criticizing guys because their record. I mean, it's college sports, and it's the tournament. As we see year in and year out, anything can happen. To wit, South Carolina, a seven seed from a school that nobody considers to be any kind of a basketball powerhouse, is in the final four. So anyway, I would like to see that Monday night game, Gonzaga versus North Carolina. If if it's South Carolina, Oregon, pretty sure I won't watch the game. Maybe I'll watch the first half, and that's the other thing. You know, of course they have to start the game at nine thirty. And I know I sound like a, a grumpy old man, but um, you know, so I mean, I mean, like last year, I'll admit it, I didn't even see <laughs> the end of that game, of the game in Villanova, North Carolina. Excellent game, two really good teams, obviously a great finish. Villanova winning on a buzzer beater. I wanted to stay up, I just couldn't. But so South Carolina, Oregon, yeesh. Not a lot of cachet in that matchup. So let's hope it's Gonzaga, North Carolina. All right, when we take a short break, we'll be back with some NBA right after this. Here on Jamal About Sports, that was The Stranglers with Always the Sun. You may know them better from their other hit, Peaches. All right, we're back with some NBA and uh, some interesting uh, interesting developments since we last spoke about the NBA. The Cavaliers are in a bit of free-fall mode. I believe they're 2-7 in their last nine games. The Warriors have rebounded since their little stumble after Kevin Durant uh went on the uh, the injured list. I guess they don't have a disabled list in the NBA. Um, they've won seven in a row. Granted, not a, a, exactly against a powerhouse lineup, but nevertheless, seven in a row. So they seem like they've righted the ship. And Cavaliers now are no longer the top seed in the, uh, in the East. Um, in fact, we shall go to the standings, and you will see that the number one seed would be the, right now Season ended today, and I know it's, you know, I always make fun of that saying that because the season is not ending today. Um, but if it did, they technically would be the one seed because they're 48 and 26, and Cleveland's 47 and 26. Um, so Cleveland 8 5 and 5 in their last 10, Celtics 8 and 2. Uh, Isaiah Thomas has to firmly be in, uh, in the MVP discussion now. Has to be. Has to be. And I have to admit, I'll do a full, I've done a full 180 on this guy, and i got to give my buddy Mike Lantini, who's out there, credit, who's a huge Celtics fan, he told me two years ago this guy was a really good player. You know, I remember when he was on um, the Kings, his first team, and again, perfect example, I think he played four years at Washington, or if not three. Now, he's short, he's undersized, right, he's 5'9", but he's a very good college player, completely overlooked by by the, the geniuses in the NBA. Uh... So I think he was a second-round pick, maybe. You know what? We're going to have to go check this out because it's important. Um, and I will take a look at him. But in any event, 
He's had a tremendous year. So when he started out with the Kings, I just remember him, you know, being kind of a, a ball hog, total gunner. Uh, but of course, the Knicks could never stop him, so it would irritate me even more because he was this little short guy who was basically the biggest chucker you ever saw in your life. But of course, the Knicks could never have an answer for him. He'd score thirty against them every time. And, you know, and the Kings have been lousy forever now, right? And the last time the Kings were any good was what ten years ago. And then he went to Phoenix, and they had sort of this wild kind of three-guard, up-tempo attack in Phoenix, which I think Jeff Warnesek was the coach of that team. And then he got dealt to the Celtics, and nobody really kind of made much of it. And he's been tremendous for them. He really has. So um, let's see here. Uh, Roster. Okay, we'll go to Isaiah Thomas, if we could ever find him. And see what uh, what his deal is. He's yeah, he's listed as 5'9", 185. He might not even be 5'9". Um, yeah, he was a second round pick, 60th overall pick. Oh, thanks ESPN. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks ESPN.com with your commercials. I got to look something up. Sorry, gang. Sorry, sorry. Thanks. Okay. You're, 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 by the way, ESPN.com. You're now done. You're now you are done. Adios. So, yeah, he was the 60th player chosen in the 2011 draft out of Washington. Mm-hmm. He's averaging 29.6 six, 29. assists a game for the number one top seed in the East. And I believe, he, I know he was for a time, I don't know if that's it, changed, if he's not, he's right there, uh, leading score in the fourth quarter of games. Averages like 10, 11 points in the, just the fourth quarter alone at winning time. Has to be considered for uh, MVP. Has to be. You guys know I love my man Russell Westbrook. He had yet another triple double the other night, and in fact, he's leading the league in scoring at thirty-one points a game. Third in the league in assists at ten point four, and he is well. He's not in the top five in rebounds, but. As we know, he's averaging a triple-double. So he is averaging... Hold on. Rebounds, rebounds, rebounds. Trying to find him. Hmm. Okay. Here we go. Russell Westbrook averaging 10.5 rebounds a game. And again, Russell Westbrook is 6'3". Yeah, 6'3". Averaging... I mean, he's listen, he's a stud athlete, obviously. But still, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I think he had his 38th triple-double last night. I think they're 33-5 and five in the games he has a triple-double. And then James Harden has to be considered, too. He's leading the league in assists. This is a guy who's... I couldn't stand watching James Harden play. I mean, the dopey beard notwithstanding. You know, just his hideous, ugly, dribble the ball around for 20 seconds and then either launch a bad contested three or drive uncontrollably to the basket, flail his arms up in the air and, you know, get calls from refs that he shouldn't be getting and go to the foul line. I mean, that was his game, basically. And again, Dan Tony, former Knicks coach that they had no use for, uh, has completely transformed his game by making him the point guard. Seemed insane at the time to do that. And now all James Harden has done is averaging 29 points and 11 assists a game. Plus, for good measure, I think he's averaging about 7 rebounds a game, too. 
So he's got to be considered an MVP candidate because the, the Rockets are right up there as well. Let's see. I think they're going to be, what, are they third or fourth in the Western Conference? Well, you got, let's see. Yeah, they're third. 51-22. and 22. It's a team that didn't make the playoffs last year. They're 51-22 this year. It's pretty good. Kawhi Leonard has to be considered for MVP, the best player on the Spurs, who are 57-16. and 16. He's a stud defender, and he's averaging 20-something a game. So it's exciting. I mean, look, I understand you can want to say you could give the, the award to LeBron every year. I'm sorry. He didn't deserve it this year. Now, I'm not blaming the Cavaliers' sort of mundane season. I mean, look, they're still 21 games over 500. It's not like they're mediocre. Uh, I don't think we'll see the Knicks at 21 games over 500 uh, anytime soon, ever. And then I guess you could maybe throw John Wall into the conversation from the Wizards. They're 45 and 28 now. They're playing really well. We talked about the fact that they had a very good starting five, although Markeith Morris and Otto Porter Jr. and Martian Gortat have all not really been playing that well lately. They've kind of picked it up in the last couple of games. But they added Brandon Jennings and Bobo, Boyan Bogdanovich to the bench, and Ian Mahimi has come back. And Jason Smith's not a bad bench player for them. So, you know, their biggest weakness, which was their bench, has now become... I don't want to say a strength, but it certainly has improved markedly. And I don't, you know, I don't know that I want to play the Wizards in seven game series. Even if you get past them, you might they might take you seven. And Toronto has showed up a lot lately. They've won six in a row quietly, and this is all without Kyle Lowry. I think I might have, like my the genius that I am, I think I wrote them off a couple of weeks ago. And meanwhile, they they're playing great. They, it all started for them as they, they were getting killed by the Bulls last week and then had a furious comeback as a game where Brooke Lopez and Serge Ibaka got into a fist fight. They both got kicked out of the game. And uh, they ended up coming back and winning that game in overtime. And that really kind of jump-started them. They played great ever since. Won six in a row. They're 45-29. and 29. So it's interesting. What, there's 82 games in the NBA season, so 48, 20, 68. There's only eight games left or thereabouts, eight or nine games, depending on, on what team you're looking at. So there's not a ton of time left. You'd think either the, the Celtics and or the Cavs will be, not and or, the Celtics or the Cavs will be the first, and then the next one will be the two seed. Washington most likely will be the three seed, except they're only a game up on the Raptors for that. And they're really only two games Back in the loss column from the Cavs. And Washington just beat the Cavs, by the way, the other night in Cleveland. And the game before when they, those two teams played, I think we talked about it, it took a ridiculous falling out of bounds. Looked like he kind of was out of bounds. Bank shot three from LeBron. He didn't send that game into overtime. And then the Cavs ended up winning. But Washington's giving the Cavaliers all they can handle. And they're only two back of the Cavs for the two seed. And then obviously the Raptors only three back of them. And the rest of the East is not even worth talking about. The Hawks are a disaster. Bucks, Pacers, Heat, whatever. They're all 500 teams. None of them are any good. Um, I mean, the Heat have, you know, Hassan Whiteside. And they're 30. Well, let's see. Are they the eighth seed right now? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, right now the Heat would be the eighth seed. 
at 35 and 38, three games under 500. Now, it's a little misleading because they were, at one point in the year, 15 games under 500. So they played a lot better for the last two months. But they're not, they're not going to pressure or threaten the one seed, be it the Cavs or the Celtics. And then, I mean, the Pacers, they have Paul George, not much else to speak of there. I mean, George Teague is a nice player, point guard, whatever. Bucks, same thing. They've got the Greek freak, Theanis Antigalopoulos, whatever the hell his last name is. Uh, it's stud from Greece. Not much else there. Um, the Hawks. Actually, the funny thing, the Hawks, every time I look at the box score, I see Tim Hardaway Jr. with another 20-point-plus game. Another guy the Knicks had no use for. Uh, so, anyway... Oh, boy. So that's the East. And in the West, you know, you've got the Warriors at 59 and 14, the one. San Antonio is 57 and 16 at the two right now. Two games, you know, back, obviously two games back. Rockets 51 and 22. They're locked in at the third seed. Then you've got the Jazz, who have been a nice story all year at 45 and 29. The four, the Clippers, the Thunder, and the Grizzlies. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, and then the Trailblazers right now and the Nuggets are tied for the eight seed, both of which are 35 and 38. And the Thunder, again, I, you know, look, I, I'm not saying they're not making, you know, it could, could they win? What are they? They're one, two, three, four, five. They're the sixth seed. Well, they're tied with the Clippers in the loss column. They played two less games. So they could go to the five seed, which means they would play the Jazz, right? Four, five, play each other. One, eight, two, seven, three, six, four, five. They could beat the Jazz. Clippers, uh, the Thunder could beat the Jazz in an opening series. And then the next team that plays the Thunder, again, they'll probably win if that's Golden State or San Antonio. But, I mean, that's... They're going to be a pain in the neck. They will be a pain in the neck. They will be a tough out. I'll be shocked if the Thunder is an easy out in these playoffs. Shocked. So it's actually, I know I think about a month ago I made some grand proclamation about how the NBA had a competitive balance problem. And then pretty much ever since then they, I've been proven exactly a thousand percent wrong. So, now, I still could be proven right if it's another rematch of Golden State and Cleveland. I mean, I would love to see, I mean, no offense, I'm not a LeBron hater. I'm not a LeBron lover, but I respect the hell out of him. I mean, think about it. This guy has lived his entire life in the public eye since he was basically 14, 15 years old, and you haven't heard a peep. One negative thing about the guy off the court, not one. And there's not much to, to complain about on the court either. So I respect the hell out of LeBron. Now, does he do a couple of things here and there that are a little irritating, gets a little whiny sometimes? Okay, whatever. It's not the end of the world. But I would just like to see another team other than the Cavs come out of the East. I just think it's more exciting. You know, to me, it gets boring when the same teams over and over again. And they got they got their championship last year. Let somebody else get something going this year. <laughs> All right, we'll take a short break and we'll come back with the NFL right after this. 
gentlemen, we are back on a Tuesday night edition of Jamal About Sports. That, of course, was my main man, Chuck Brown, and the Soul Searchers. little DC go-go on a rainy Tuesday night up here in New York City. A music genre I had no idea about until I got to University of Maryland. Uh, as James Brown would be the godfather of soul, I think it's fair to say that Chuck Brown would be the godfather of go-go. But anyway, I digress. We're back. We are halfway through the show, and we are on to the NFL, where, listen, I know we, we, we have a complicated relationship with the NFL, shall we say. Love the on-the-field aspect of the, of the essence of the game, the actual competition amongst the players. Now, as somebody who roots for the Lions, <laughs> it, it's been maddening, it's been frustrating, it's been disheartening for all myriad of reasons. We won't even get into those. But in general, the play itself is what draws me, and I think it's what draws most people. The business side, the off-the-field side, the corporate side, less so. And never more than now is that more on display than the latest news that the Oakland Raiders, who after 14 years of stinking up the joint and being a an annual embarrassment of an NFL franchise, finally got good last year, made the playoffs. Now, unfortunately for them, through no fault of their own, their quarterback got hurt in the second and last game of the year and completely derailed any chance they had of making some noise in the playoffs. But now they're moving to Las Vegas because guess what? They ponied up $750 million and God forbid the city of Oakland won't be held hostage to pay for either a new stadium or major upgrades to the current stadium there. So now they have to move. And Roger Goodell has the gall to say, well, we looked at every angle and we never want to make these decisions. Let, I mean, please, please. Just like the Chargers are now the Los Angeles Chargers because they're the same nonsense. And they're going to go play in some dopey 25,000 foot soccer stadium next year until they hijack somebody else and give them a new stadium. And the Rams had to go back to L.A., because St. Louis isn't deemed worthy enough, I guess, to have a, a football team. You had one in the 80s and the 70s, and then you hijacked them out to St. Louis. I mean, sorry, to Arizona. You moved the L.A. Rams to St. Louis, but then no, 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 no. I mean, the writing's on the wall. Three years ago, Robert Kraft said, we all know we want, we need to have a, a pro team in L.A. Why? Why? Why now? You had one. They don't care. There's a million things to do out there. My man Justin Rubin can tell you. He's as big a football fan as there is. Now he's a Giants fan. He's a transplanted LA guy. He's been out there 20-something years now, but he's from New, you know, he's from New York. All the transplanted New Yorkers out there, they're all Giants fans. They don't care. They don't need a team there. And those are probably, I would bet, the real football fans in L.A. 
are all New Yorkers that are transplanted, that live out there. Now, they're not from L.A. Nobody cares. So that's number one. And then the owner, Mark Davis, Al's, you know, weird son. You know, oh, well, they'll always be a part of Oakland. But there's no part of Oakland. Now, this is not going to probably happen, by the way, for the next couple of years. At least. And I'm sure there'll be people out there like they'll say it's great. And, you know, it's not that long a flight from Oakland to Las Vegas. So you still have to get on a plane. I mean, I'll barely go to a Mets game if the stadium's 12 miles away from me. It's such a hassle. Sometimes. So, I mean, I think it's a joke. I think it's an absolute joke. And by the way, mark my words. There will be some poor franchise like the Jaguars, or maybe the next one to go is going to be the Bills. They will be a t- there will be a team in London, and it will come from a team that's currently playing in the NFL. It's not going to be an extant- expansion team. So, you know, the hypocrisy there continues. And then the, the biggest joke ever is this Colin Kaepernick situation. Talked about it a little bit with AG last week. Wanted to get further into it. So, still unsigned. There was some mysterious report that came out yesterday that he's expecting to get 9 to $10 million a year and be a starter. Now that's been shot down by his people. And, you know, again, he's too much, what, of a distraction? Uh-huh. Let's see. Uh, Greg Hardy got a second chance from the Cowboys... He beat a woman. Colin Kaepernick knelt for the national anthem. You know what else Colin Kaepernick did? He donated 50 grand to Meals on Wheels. I think he just gave $500,000 for water in Somalia. So let's see. One guy's charitable for worthy causes and disagrees with your point of view. That's a distraction. But a thug who beats up women, that's okay. That's worthy of a second chance. Adrian Peterson, you know he's getting a job. Now, he's 32, and he probably wants too much money right now, but he will get a job. Someone will sign him. Beat his kid with a stick to within an inch of his life. Oh, And has like five other kids by five other different women. One of whom was murdered by that woman's quote unquote boyfriend two years ago. But that's not a distraction. That's just peachy keen. It's funny, Aaron Hernandez wasn't a distraction for that model franchise, the Patriots, was he? Until he murdered somebody. Even though it was known coming out of college he was a bad guy. What a joke. Gee, I wonder why. It's funny. I'll bet if Colin Kaepernick wrote a column for Breitbart News, 
Nobody would be saying he's a distraction. I wonder why. Hmm. Let me think. What is it that the most NFL owners and uh, the current president of the United States, who, by the way, gleefully, publicly and gleefully said, it's probably because of me he doesn't have a job yet because owners don't want to get nasty tweets from me. That's the president of our country taking joy publicly in a, a citizen of this country, of his country, unemployment. Charming, isn't it? That's quite charming. Way to keep it classy. So, I mean, you know, look, I understand he has not played great, okay? We talked about it last week. But on a horrendous team last year, terrible offensive line, no receivers to speak of. Jeremy Curley was their best receiver. He threw 16 touchdowns against only four interceptions in a part-time duty. He didn't play the whole year. I get it. And I think he also ran in for a few. He's still mobile as hell. He can still throw the ball. With the right coaching on the right team, that guy can be a decent player. I'm not saying he's an all-star, an all-pro, an MVP, but compared to some of the dreck that's out there in the NFL currently on rosters. Yes, I'm looking at you, Josh McCown, on the Jets. Yeah, Colin Kaepernick's a massive upgrade. It'll be interesting to see if somebody signs him. You know, I could see a team like the Steelers signing him, although they like Landry Jones and they're bringing him back. So there's probably not a spot for him there. But that would have been, to me, a good place for him to go. Solid organization. Well run. Roethlisberger dropped some hints that he, you know, was debating whether or not he may even come back for this year. In all likelihood, he will. But if that's the case, then this could be his last year. Kaepernick's still young enough that he would be a pretty good heir apparent. Put Kaepernick behind a good offensive line with the weapons that the Steelers have. Antonio Brown... Le'Veon Bell. I bet he wins more games than Josh McCown does. All right, and finally, Major League Baseball. It is that time of year as opening day is less than a week away. Of course, we have to get the uh, obligatory now Sunday night game on ESPN. Um, The Mets open on Monday against the Bravos. And um, I have to say, I paid fairly close attention to the Mets this spring. I've watched as many spring games as I can. It's, it's, it's funny. There, there used to be, a, you know, back in the day, not that many on TV. Now it seems like almost all of them are on television uh, between the Major League Baseball Network and the Mets' own network, SNY. Um, I think the Mets are a good team. I think they are around a 90-win team. And I don't even think that's if everything goes right because I think they've got enough starting rotation depth with Thor. I mean, Thor is Thor. He's a stud. Noah Syndergaard. As your ace, Jacob deGrom, who last year was clearly compromised by his injury, but still 
managed to, to pitch well enough to win some games, pitch to a th- low 3 ZRA, and then finally had to shut it down late in the year. He looks free and easy and healthy this spring. His velocity is back up to 96, 97 consistently. He looks like he's poised for a big year. Matt Harvey, who got off to a slow start in the spring, looked excellent his last start. I watched it. Gave up two runs, six innings. Really should only been one run. The first run scored on, on a, a guy got on base on a, on a pop fly that you know should have been caught. Kind of fell in the triangle between left fielder, center fielder, and shortstop. Wind kind of played tricks with it. But he looked very good. His velocity was back up into the mid-90s consistently. Got as high as 97. Breaking pitches look good. So he's the third starter. Remember, two years ago he was the ace. Three years ago he was the savior. Now he's the third starter in this rotation. And then the fourth starter, well, that's where it gets a little dicey. Steven Matz looks like he's got a, a minor, and it's not an injury, but he had some discomfort. He's lobbying to, to, to be on the, the roster. The Mets may take it. I, if I were the Mets, I would be very, very take it very slow because they've got this kid, Robert Gesellman, who came up late in the year last year. He's had a very good spring. He should be the fourth starter. And then the fifth starter is either going to be Zach Wheeler, but that's dicey because he's missed two years with Tommy John surgery, and the Mets are limiting him to 125 innings, which why we make that decision, by the way, today is idiotic to me. Can, can you see how he actually feels and does during the year before we make these we put these limits on guys? Which begs the question, if you let him start, the season with the team, then you're going to have to shut them down late in the year, or you're going to have to try to play this game where you look to let them only pitch five innings sometimes, and then, but then you've got to have a guy in the bullpen that could back them up for at least another two or three. I, I don't think that makes sense. But they've also got Seth Lugo, who pitched very well for them down the stretch last year, who, granted, he got rocked uh, yesterday in a spring start, but I think we talked about it earlier on another show. You know, shut down that that really good Venezuela team in the World Baseball Classic. You know, that lineup, again, Victor Martinez, Miguel Cabrera, Runet Odor, and Jose Altuve. Four All-Stars. Four Major League All-Stars in that lineup. And there might, I may be even leaving out a couple of guys, but even if, I mean, you pitch, pitch against a lineup like that, you give one hit, one hit, shut them down. And again, not in the spring training game in the World Baseball Classic where these guys are amped up trying to win. So they've got enough there. And then Rafael Mantero, who was kind of the forgotten man. Mets were high on him a couple years ago. Had a miserable year in the minors last year. He's had a very good spring also. So I think they've got enough depth. And listen, there's no doubt the Mets are going to need seven or eight pitchers this year. That's just how it goes now. The days of four or five guys trotting them out every fifth day are over, apparently. So they're going to need seven or eight. And it looks like they've got seven or eight. So I'm not worried about the starting pitching. And I think the bullpen will be fine too. Familia is going to miss at least, I'd say, 15 games, maybe 30. Addison Reed's not had a very good spring. I worry a little bit because, you know, Mike, I, I talk about the fickle nature of the not totally elite closers or the elite setup guys, right? One year a guy could be great, the next year he could stink, but then he could bounce back and be great the next year. I mean, you never know with half these guys. And Addison Reed is, but he's got a track record of success. I mean, he was a really good closer, then he was a so-so closer. Last year, he was a tremendous setup man for the Mets. I mean, unbelievable. His numbers were off the charts. 
So I think with him, Salas, Robles, Josh Smokers looked very good from uh, the lefty hard thrower. Jerry Jerry, uh, Jerry Blevins is a decent lefty out of the bull. I think the Mets are fine. I think they'll be fine out of the bullpen. You know, again, provided Familia has is Familia if he has a good year again. No reason to think he won't. He looked pretty good in WBC. So I think he'll be okay. And then the lineup, look, the lineup is not, it's not perfect. It's got, it's got some flaws. But the best thing that could ever happen in the Mets is David Wright getting hurt. Because that makes them have to play Reyes at third every day. Reyes, the only guy on the team that could be a leadoff hitter. And he's not even ideal as a leadoff hitter because he doesn't have a super high on base percentage. If he gives you a 340, you'd be thrilled if he gave you a 350 on base percentage. 340 I'd sign up for today. But he looks good. Legs look good. I saw him leg out a triple the other day on Sunday, I think it was. He's looked very good in the field at third base. Not surprising. You see guys move from short to third later in their career a lot. It's generally the bigger guys like Cal Ripken Jr. did it. A-Rod did it. Manny Machado recently for the Orioles has done it. There's talk that the stud player for the Astros, Carlos Correa, might do it. He did it in the WBC, did it flawlessly, even though he'd never played third base in a professional game before, but he looked great at it. But, I mean, generally speaking, if you're a really good shortstop, you can handle third base. So I'm not worried about Reyes' defense there. But he's going to be the leadoff hitter. You know, you've got... As Drupal Cabrera is going to hit second. So two... And both of whom are switch hitters. Cespedes hitting third. He's not a third place hitter. He should be hitting cleanup. And this is where this is where I get into some issues with the Mets. They're handing Jay Bruce the right field job every day because Sandy Alderson couldn't trade him in the offseason. They, they, they gambled by picking up his last year option because they ha- didn't have a deal with Cespedes yet. So he was insurance. He was a CYA situation there. Cover your ass. Then they were able to re-sign Cespedes. Now they're stuck with Jay Bruce. Nobody wanted Jay Bruce in the offseason because I think probably they knew that the Mets had his glut because they had Granderson, they had Jay Bruce, they had Conforto, all three corner outfielders, even though the Mets are going to shove Granderson into center field right now because they kind of screwed themselves with this. And he played center field many moons ago, but he's not an everyday center fielder now, particularly in the spacious outfield of City Field. You're just asking for trouble there. Now, they've got Juan Lagares to be his caddy and come in as a late-inning defensive replacement, although he just got hurt the other day, so he's probably going to miss at least the first couple weeks of the year with an oblique strain, running out of foul ball, of all things. But in any event, so three lefty-hitting corner outfielders in Conforto, Bruce, and Granderson. Now, Conforto played some center last year. He's played some center this spring. He's dropped some weight. He looks more athletic. He looks like he can be at least competent out there. But again, see, the problem is Lagarde doesn't hit enough or else that should be your center fielder, particularly in city field, because he's literally a gold glover. And the year he won the gold glove, I'd never seen a Mets center fielder play that kind of defense ever. And Carlos Beltran had some very good years in center for the Mets. Mike Cameron did as well prior to him. Uh, Lagarde is off the charts. He looked, he, Ligaris gave the Mets Andrew Jones in his prime for the Braves level defense in center field. That's how good he is when he's healthy. 
So ideally, he'd be your center fielder, but he doesn't hit enough. But at the very least, he's going to be your backup. It's not the end of the world having him play some against lefties, give Granderson a blow here or there, and then come in you know, late in the game and the Mets have a lead. It's not the end of the world. It's not the worst plan I ever heard of. But the idea that the Mets handed the right field job to Jay Bruce, Jay Bruce was a late, you know, he was a trade deadline acquisition last year who stunk. He was terrible. Now, I'm not saying Jay Bruce is a bad player. You look at his career, he's a decent player. He's a streaky hitter. Last year, for the year, he put up like 30 and 99. Pretty good numbers. You know, on base percentage, so-so. OPS, like around 800. He's okay. But, you know, again, I'm a Met fan. He's not one of ours. He was a hired gun who didn't really hold up his end of the bargain. And Michael Conforto has had a great spring. And he's the future. So in an ideal world, he would be your starting right fielder. He would be your third place hitter. And Cespedes would hit fourth. But the Mets aren't doing that. For now, it's a long season. So Cespedes is going to hit third. Right now, Granderson is going to hit fourth, which, listen, I love Curtis Granderson, the person. You can't get a better representative of a team than Curtis Granderson. Class act all the way. And he's given the Mets some very good moments. His first year was not very good. His second year was, he had a really good second half. His second year last year was pretty, pretty, pretty weak year. I mean, he hit 30 home runs. He had 59 RBIs. That's absurd. And I want to hear because he hit leadoff. He didn't hit leadoff that much. He couldn't buy a hit with a runner in scoring position, as most of the Mets team couldn't do last year until late in the year. So you would think, hopefully, law of averages, that stuff evens out. And, you know, from a pure power standpoint, not the worst having him hit cleanup, but he does strike out a ton. I think he hit about 240 last year, if that, maybe even under that. He's not ideal. Again, an ideal world, Cespedes is your cleanup hitter. If Granderson is going to play every day, he should be like a sixth-place hitter. And Bruce is going to hit fifth, and I guess Duda will hit sixth. And I guess Neil Walker seventh, or some combination there, and I'll probably sprinkle Neil Walker in between, actually, because he's a switch hitter. You don't want to have three lefties in a row. So you'll probably go Granderson fourth, Bruce fifth, Neil Walker sixth, Duda seventh, Travis Darnell or Rene Rivera, whomever catches that day, eighth. And then obviously the pitcher spot. And Travis Darno, this is a big year for him. You know, he was actually the signature piece in the R.A. Dickey trade with the Blue Jays a couple years ago. Now, the Mets had high hopes for Syndergaard. I don't know if they thought he'd be this good. And I'm sure, obviously, the Blue Jays would like to have that one back. But Darno was the big piece in that trade. And he had two years. Well, first of all, he's had two issues. He's never, never healthy. But two years ago, when the Mets won the World or made the World Series, he had a very good year. He had an 8.30 OPS, 12 home runs, and not that many at bats. But again, he missed a bunch of times; he was hurt. But he had a good playoffs. So you thought next last year was going to be a big bounce back year? He was lousy, and he got hurt again. And but when he did play, he was terrible. And they brought in a new coach, this guy Glenn Sherlock, to help him with his defense. He hasn't literally hasn't thrown a runner out in spring training this year. 0 for 12. But he's hit, at least. So, you know. And they say he's making progress with the, with the throwing. We'll see. Again, long season. But it's a big year for him. He's 28 now. 
This is it. I mean, the, Met, the, the Mets could have gone out and signed Matt Wieters. Their rival, the Nationals, did instead. They could have gotten Derek Norris, who's a good hitting catcher. They opted to go with a backup for Darnell and Rene Rivera, who's known for his defense. Okay. But he has another stinkeroo of a year. And the Mets are either going to be looking to make a trade at the deadline and or if they can't, Darno's out and they're going to go try and do something else. So this is pretty much his last chance, I would say, to be the Mets catcher. I hope it works out. He seems like a good kid. Tries hard. He's just had terrible luck with injuries. So, I mean, listen. I think the Mets starting pitching matches up with anybody's. I think their bullpen matches up with anybody's. And the offense, you know, again, the flaw with the offense is you got a lot of power there. I mean, almost everybody in the lineup, when they had their starters, Reyes, Cabrera, Cespedes, Granderson, Bruce, Walker, Duda, Darno, all those guys have double-digit power, home, you know, double-digit home run power. And some of those guys are 30 home run guys. Duda's a p- previous 30 home run guy. Cespedes, we know. Granderson, we know. Bruce, we know. I mean, that's four guys. Now, I'm not saying all four guys are going to get 30 home runs in a year. But you get my point. But the downside to that is a bit of an all-or-nothing team. They were terrible last year in manufacturing runs. I think they were second in the National League in home runs, 11th in runs scored. Because they didn't didn't do the situational stuff. They never move a runner over. They never get a runner home from third with less than two outs. And by the way, I know everybody loves Terry Collins now. That's been a hallmark of the Mets ever since Terry Collins came here. They're a terrible fundamental team. Terrible. Base running, lousy. Terrible situational hitting. And you can blame that on the manager or not. I don't know if it's the manager's fault. But I know a lot of other teams where that stuff, where teams do it the right way, the manager gets a lot of credit. So make your own determination on that. But the thing for the Mets is that, look, you know, last year you had two terrible teams in the Phillies and the Braves, although the Mets didn't really take great advantage. The Phillies they did, the Braves they didn't. Both those teams can be better this year. Braves lineup is not terrible. Phillies lineup's not terrible. Now the pitching, you know, the Braves, who knows? They signed Bartolo Colon, they signed R.A. Dickey. They've got uh, Julio Tehran, who the Mets can never hit, is their ace. So, I mean, they potentially could have a pretty good three. The rest of the rotation, a couple young guys, Fultonevich, and I forget who the other guy, the fifth guy is. Eh, same thing with the Phillies. But, you know, the Marlins always is thorn in the Mets' side. And, you know, they've got, look, they've got Stanton. They've got Christian Yelich, uh, Ozuna, Echeverria, Riamulto, the catcher's good. You know, they may not be bad. And then the Nationals are going to be good. I mean, you'd expect some regression from Daniel Murphy, but he's probably going to be solid. And then, look, Bryce Harper didn't have a great year last year. If he has another monster year, they're going to be tough. Now, the big issue with the Nationals is the bullpen. They lost uh, Melanson, or Melanson, or however he likes to pronounce his name. It's Melancon, by the way. M-E-L-A-N-C-O-N. How would you pronounce it? Melancon. But apparently, according to him, it's Melanson. Anyway, they, he, they lost him to the Giants, so they don't have a proven closer. Dusty Baker's still the manager. Not exactly. Uh, Dusty doesn't exactly kill it with the, uh, l- the late-game bullpen decisions, shall we say dating all the way back to his time with the Giants and pulling Russ Ortiz in the 2002 World Series against the Angels. Um, but the Nationals are formidable. 
You know, they've got Scherzer, they've got Strasburg, they've got Geo, Tanner Roark. I mean, they're 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 uh, starting rotation certainly matches up with the Mets for sure. They're going to be going toe to toe all year. But the, the interesting thing again is those two teams that were really bad last year and the Nationals beat up on, they will be better. Braves are going to be better. Phillies are going to be better. So it should be very interesting. All right, that's going to do it for another episode of Jamal About Sports. We'll be back next week breaking down, I guess, the final game, if I can stay up to watch the whole thing, and the rest of the world in sports. Until then, keep a glide in your stride and a dip in your hip. Peace out.